Hello and welcome. You're listening to This Is Some Scene. I am James Ippolitti, and I am also the host of the Real Demons of Pop Culture podcast, and many more podcasts soon to come. This Is Some Scene was a podcast I produced back in the mid-2000s to about 2009. Season one of This Is Some Scene is going to be those lost interviews. Interviews with people like Tommy Wiseau, Joe Dante, Amber Benson, Crispin Glover, so many more at the dawn of podcasting. I had a group of people that had a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Now, the quality is not as great as it could be because it was at the beginning of podcasting where it was very hard. It also was recorded live. Most of the calls were live, as you will see. And so the quality is not to the standards of 2023, but they are pretty good for 2008, 2009, etc. You may hear the voices of Andrea. You may hear the voices of Eric Feasterville, also known as Chris Blake Sasser. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy these interviews from the beginning of the podcasting universe. In season two, we will be introducing new interviews to continue the legacy of This Is Some Scene. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another thrilling episode of This Is Some Scene, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the captivating world of pop culture icons. I'm the producer, James Ippolitti, and today I have a special treat for you, a lost interview with the legendary filmmaker Jack Hill from the year 2009. Now, you might be wondering, who is Jack Hill? Well, buckle up, because Hill is the creative genius behind some of the most exhilarating exploitation films of his time. In fact, Quentin Tarantino's company, Rolling Thunder Pictures, recognized Hill's extraordinary talent and re-released his cult classic Switchblade Sisters in theaters back in 1996. Tarantino himself even went so far as to dub Hill the Howard Hawks of exploitation filmmaking. But Hill's contribution to the world of cinema go far beyond that. He had an eye for discovering incredible talent, bringing stars like Pam Greer, who appeared in four of his films from The Big Dollhouse to Foxy Brown, and Sid Haig, who became a fixture in many of Hill's movies, starting with Spider Baby. Hill also worked with the phenomenal Ellen Burstyn, who starred in his film Pit Stop. So get ready for this 2009 interview. It's myself and Chris Blake Sasser hosting, and we uncover the untold stories and creative brilliance of Jack Hill. And by the way, Jack Hill's still alive. He's 90. So this is probably, he was in his late 70s, 80s during this conversation. But this lost interview will shed light on a remarkable filmmaker who left an indelible mark on the world of cinema. This is some scene. This is some scene. This is some scene. This is some scene. Jack Hill stands as one of the great directors and influenced uh, aspiring filmmaker named Quentin Tarantino, the director who gave us the world of coffee, Foxy Brown, Spider Baby, Switchblade Sisters, and other exploitation classics. He broke gender and racial barriers in his low-budget work 
He launched the careers of Pam Greer, Ellen Burstyn, and Sin Hague, and worked with Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney in the twilight of their careers. Let me uh, welcome to the show Jack Hill. Hey, this is Jack here. Thank you for calling in. Welcome to This Is Some Scene. Uh, I have Chris on the line as well. He might chime in because he's a huge fan as well. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, okay. it's such an honor to have you call in, so thank you very much for this. Um, oh, so let's, let me go back. Now, you, you have a, your father was an art director for Warner Brothers and then Disney Studios, but you were more influenced by your mother, who was a music teacher, and you went to UCLA, you got a degree in music, you were going for a degree in music with the idea of learning to score films. And even Quentin Tarantino says on the Switchblade Sisters DVD that your dialogue is written like a musical piece. Is that a conscious thing when you're writing a film? Is the musical <laughs> influence? I never knew that Quentin said that. Yeah, no, he, he, it's on the Switchblade Sisters. Oh, okay. Maybe I just overlooked it. Um, well, you know, it's the whole thing. I mean, it's not just, it's not just dialogue. When you're making an, an art form that's conceived in time, uh, you, you have to have a rhythm. And uh, when you grow up with music and learning music and learning to write music and studying music, uh, I think maybe you get a sense of that kind of rhythm. And uh, it uh, applies to the pacing of a film as a whole. It applies to the individual scenes and the individual Lines of dialogue, perhaps. No, I can't say it's particularly conscious. Uh, at least I don't try to set. Okay, I'm going to write a minuet. You know, I mean, I don't. Uh, but uh, I, I think that's probably why um, I've had uh, so much uh, people who observe that that it's that kind of pacing and rhythm and timing that I that I um, have. So whatever that's worth, I don't know. Well, I I think on the uh, coffee commentary, you even brought up that Tarantino comes at you after. Um, afterwards, and brought up dialogue that you had okay. written, uh, and just word for word brought up this dialogue. And this is a guy who's known for his dialogue. So obviously, uh, whatever you're doing is, you know, for the people who know, they they can pick that up. I guess so. I I can only say that, uh, uh, yeah. Well, Quentin, <laughs> right? He he, uh, he put his finger on on that. You know, I have seen him uh, like recite pages of. Dialogue, I assume, word for word from movies that I, I couldn't begin to. Even <laughs> some of my own, you know, I couldn't remember, and he would have it down line for line. He's amazing that way. He's got a, just a remarkable memory for that kind of thing. Now, what was your primary instrument? Did you have an instrument that you grew up learning? Well, the standard. I, yeah, I, I started on violin and piano when I was about five. My mother was a music teacher, and. Uh, and uh, then uh, when I got into high school, I took up French horn and uh, got very good at that and played professionally on it. And then I uh, I uh, played other strings as well. And then uh, actually uh, in the 50s, I was on the road with a uh, little rock group playing electric piano, one of the first electric pianos. But uh, let's nice. leave that all behind us, you know. <laughs> That's fascinating. Now, going into UCLA, did you have um... – musicians like you know people who scored film that you were influenced by like bernard herman or were uh, there yeah actually i mean i had done a lot of studio recording uh, actually i learned <clears throat> when i was rather young i learned to play an instrument called the cymbalum a hungarian cymbalum which uh they they like to use in in these um, movies like oh i played dr zhivago and the brothers karamazov and taurus bulba those kind of scores you know where they like that kind of exotic east european and russian kind of uh sound and uh, and I worked with some really fine composers and uh, yeah I was really interested in, in doing that because uh, 
because when you're recording, you know, you're recording right there on the set, watching the movie as you play the music. And um, so, yeah, so I went back to UCLA to finish my degree in music, which I did, and took advantage of getting into a motion picture uh, department with the idea of learning uh, learning about editing and so forth. And But, uh, you know, I had done... I had made little films with my little 8 millimeter movie camera since I was about 12 years old, and uh, nothing on a, any kind of big scale or anything. But so I mean, I had a, I had a, a, quite a bit of experience with photography, and and uh, so I, I wrote, and they uh, in a writing class, and they encouraged me to uh, the teachers there encouraged me to to do more. So I did more and did a directing assignment, and then I started working in films, doing all kinds of stuff, sound recording, and odd editing and writing uh, additional scenes and stuff. Now, how much did your musical background contribute to your film scores on your own films? Did you have any part in that? Because your, your, the scores in your films are, are phenomenal. Uh, some and some not. Uh, I, I, when I, had a, when I was, um, hired my own composer, I worked kind of closely with him. But generally, I, I, my, my um, tendency was to hire somebody that I knew could do the job. And uh, unless unless I felt they were going completely cuckoo, that uh, just kind of <laughs> let them do it, and I've turned it turned out very well. Now let's you go on. You did work for Roger Corbin. You worked with Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Um, now that that obviously was a, a huge influence on you, Roger Corbin, trying to you know make films on the cheap. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an influence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. How much, like, you're, you know, you're credited? You know, let, let, let me say something. You know, okay. It's not like, you know, making films on the cheap. Yeah, you certainly uh, make films. But, but what I learned from Roger was not, you know, being cheap. What I learned from Roger was how to get the most out of every every dollar. And there's really a difference in your attitude there, you know what I mean? And right. uh, he, he, had, he had ways of making the picture look bigger than, than, than you would expect it to look. And getting the maximum of effect with a minimum of means, he was really good at that. And that's valuable, valuable for anybody. Now, and you also uh, have cited that these films that come out with these huge budgets, that that's actually a, a hindrance on the film because they can make the shots over and over again. When if you only have two chances to get that shot, your actors and everybody involved seem to, there's these lucky half accidents that happen. Yeah, you do take advantage of things like that. And but 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 another thing is that you don't get a lot of interference from 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 bean counters and people who are worried about you. You know, it's uh, you have much more control. And, and uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, like Woody Allen has to work in low budgets, and I think that that's uh, that's part of the charm of what he's able to do. Now, it's no secret that the uh, the student film you did, the host, was an influence on Coppola's. The end of the apocalypse now. Oh, now how did how, how did you how did you feel about that? Did Coppola come to you and ask you about that, or was oh, that something oh, no, you? Oh no, 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 <laughs> no. It's not like you know plagiarism or something like that. It's it's just that the um, uh, that's where he, I, I I know that uh, that he was having very uh, a lot of very very difficulty shooting because he wasn't sure how he wanted to to end the the, the movie and. Uh, and uh, when I first saw it in the in the theater, I, my, basically when I saw what was happening in that in the last act, which which basically I think is is the part of, of Apocalypse Now that doesn't really work, and uh, I, 
my, my jaw just dropped when I saw that, and, and <laughs> even little clues, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I laughed about it. And then sometime later, I ran into my, uh, Steve Durham, who was my cameraman on my student film, and it uh, turned out that he was doing second unit camera work on in the Philippines on uh, Apocalypse Now, and he, he told me that they were, they were laughing about doing Jack Hill's student film. So uh, there's, no question, there's no question about it, but I, I think it's fun. I think it's funny. I, you know, I don't say, well, he owes me something. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. Let's move on to uh, Pam Greer, Coffee, Foxy Brown. She was in other films before those. Um, but I want to clear up, and I know a lot of people, this, this word exploitation has gotten a negative connotation. And I have two quotes I want to bring up. One is from Pam, and she complains that, the word exploitation implies that we were black actors being exploited. We weren't being exploited. We were working and we were earning money. And then Fred Williamson, who starred in films like Black Caesar, Bucktown. I know Fred, yeah. Yeah, and he angrily says that the NAACP and CORE, they're the ones who created the terminology black exploitation. That has to be clear on the record. It came from them. It did not come from white press. Who was being exploited, he asks. All the black actors were getting paid. They had a job. They were going to work. The audience wasn't being exploited. They were getting to see things on the screen that they longed for. And this is something that you brought to the cinema. And, and I, I want to clear up that black exploitation doesn't mean that blacks are being exploited, that it was an exploitation film geared yeah. towards a black audience, correct? Yeah, yeah. Explo the term exploitation film came, came from the idea that, uh, that uh, instead of exploiting Big stars are exploiting a pre-sold property like a famous novel or something like that. You're 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 exploiting some kind of sensational subject matter, you know, and uh, the, the the terms like that really do come from the from the trade press. These guys coming up with words like that. I don't know where Fred got this idea that it came from the AACP. I, that's the <laughs> thing I ever heard of. I mean, you know, they wouldn't come up with something like that. No, I'm sure. At the time I was doing Coffee and Foxy Brown, that word did not exist, as I recall. It came up only only later, and uh, basically it's just a switch on the, uh, just a, a play on the word exploitation. It's black this they they had sexploitation, and I think there was a few others. So I don't find anything uh, demeaning in it. It's just a catchword that some some uh, uh, trade press writer came up with as a natural course of events, and I don't know why there should be any controversy over it at all. Right. But I want, to, I want to also bring up that by the time you were making films in the 70s, I mean, racism was, oh, it's still around today, but it was, it was very prevalent then. And as you're doing it in the 70s, but in 1964, there was a film called One Potato, Two Potato. That film was rejected at a film festival on the grounds that it featured an interracial kiss. And interracial marriage, I don't know if people know this, but in the U.S., the interracial marriage was illegal in 14 states up until 1967. So you're doing films not even 10 years later, and especially Coffee that has um, King George and he has a, a white blonde girlfriend. Right. I mean, this is breaking grounds. Now, was that difficult for you at that time? No, no, no. That was, uh, but by that time, all that kind of stuff was, uh, was fairly common. Um, yes, I remember the era that you're talking about, but when you say not accepted, I think that was a matter for, you know, there was an awful lot of censorship being done by uh, local uh, in cities and local areas where the theaters wouldn't play a film or the, they wouldn't advertise it. That was just absolutely nuts. Uh, you know, I, I don't even like to think back to those days. By the 70s, all that stuff was pretty much gone. There was still a lot of racism, but it was kind of 
it was kind of through the back door, you know. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really the kind of overt, in-your-face kind of no, you can't do this kind of stuff. And uh, so right, it was and, and natural. Yeah. It grew out of the civil rights movement, you know. People became more accustomed to that. And I, I, I will say that I think the black exploitation movies really helped that that along. You know, it incorporated. They helped incorporate by showing the studios that there could be a large white ticket buying audience for these so-called black films that uh, it brought uh, black characters and situations and lifestyles into the mainstream of films where they where they are today i think it's a, it was a very good thing right i i read um tonight i was reading doing some research and, and you know roger ebert even said that you know when that coffee came out that this is a film that shows a, a negative view of drug use and has a positive female role model uh, that, you know, before that, you know, a black film with a female character was going to be just in a bedroom. Yeah. And, you know, so you're breaking grounds, and, you know, it's not, you know, in the 60s, the Hayes Code basically ends, and, and so this is, right. I guess, you know, I'm just saying that th- these films opened up the door uh, for black cinema to be that way, and you had a huge part in that. And I, I, Now, is that something, I mean, you should be proud of, well, yeah, actually, actually, it does give me a lot of satisfaction and kind of a you know a footnote to film film history, I might say. But uh, yeah, I'm 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 very pleased that uh, because at the time these films were considered by the mainstream film industry as just uh, as an object of contempt, you know. And my own career was basically, uh, I mean, it was my shot at getting into mainstream films, basically. Uh, even though coffee hit number one in the box office uh, and worked its way up, you know, it wasn't from advertising; it was from word of mouth. And you'd think that people would say, "Hey, who is this guy? You know, he's making this movie that everybody wants to see. Ah, that's a black picture; it doesn't count." You know, there was that kind of racism, which uh, so that by being coming identified, you know, everybody gets stereotyped in the film business. And I was, oh, he he makes black films, you know, and now let's get somebody who's going to make a white film. I mean, it was. It was really awful in that sense, but things have things look very different today. And now, uh, you know, I got some respect. It's kind of nice. <laughs> but you know, there's something you brought up about, and this is also in the coffee. By the way, I love your commentaries on your DVDs. Uh, but you bring up that there was a black is beautiful feeling back then. This black pride. What do you? How do you feel that is lost today in film? Well, it's. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, you could say it's kind of lost, but I would say more it's it's unnecessary. I mean, there was a at that time it was a boy. I mean, to to, to be black in in a white society, you really felt like everything was against you, you know. And uh, and then you had role models uh, coming up, and then suddenly you see yourself on TV series and uh, with comedians and uh, everything, and so. It uh, it wasn't necessary really any anymore to uh, to make a big deal out of that. That makes sense. Let's move on to uh, violence in films. Uh, you know, a lot of people cite some of the scenes in your films as violent, and the difference in and it, compared to what comes out today, it's you know tame. Uh, but I think the reason why people feel that some of the stuff you've done is violence is because you get the characters more depth and humanity. And they have character. And so when something happens to them, you really care. As opposed to like today when you have a movie like Saul or Hostel. And I don't care about any of these characters. Um, do you feel that it's just gr- gratuitous now with violence in film? 
pretty much. Yeah, it's more just brutality. Even I mean, they've got torture porn. We call it. You know? Yes. Uh, yes. I, I really feel. Yeah, when people say my films were, were violent uh, in in some in some places, <laughs> they don't really. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's exactly uh, as you say because uh, you you really build up a little suspense to somebody, and you say, "Oh no, not him," you know. And then he gets it. Yeah, that's that's true. But you know, this traces back to. I mean, I really gave a serious study in my uh, my days when I was learning of Shakespeare, how he treated these things, and and the Greeks to some extent. And uh, uh, Shakespeare played violence back to back with humor, really quite a bit. And I uh, really really saw that as a kind of a model to to work on. And uh, you know, I'm not comparing my films to. Shakespeare, but in the sense of the technique of, of creating drama that's, that's, that affects people on a really gut level, I really paid a lot of attention to that. And uh, Tarantino so, also brings up in, in your DVD as, uh, that you are very influenced by Shakespeare, and a lot of your films do have those themes. That's something you try to do. He was saying that Switchblade Sisters is a fellow. Well, I won't say it is a <laughs> but the the basic premise was, uh, you know, the premise of, of uh, re- reversing the, the 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 sex roles and 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 doing it, uh, doing the same kind of triangle with with jealousy with a woman instead of a man. And, right. Uh, yeah, that was kind of what I I long since had an idea that that could be done, and then when I had an opportunity for a for a, a setting and a, and a genre to use it, I went for it. That's basically it. Now. What's it like to have done these films, then sort of have this time period where before you know video and DVD is not around, and then it comes back and there's this resurgence. There's this Jack Hill fan base now, uh, and and films like Spider Baby are just you know people love this film, and that's got to be a great feeling to have all this stuff come back. But at the same time, you're not that Jack Hill anymore, correct? Uh, that's yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, I am and I'm not. You know, that's that's an old philosophical question. And um, where did the idea for Spider Baby come from? It's such a interesting film, and it inspired like people Texas Chainsaw Massacre. People ask me that. I don't. I don't know. I just uh, you you get where do you get ideas? I, I don't know. Uh, I was doing a little smoke in those days. It was the '60s, so that, that <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but um, it's just, just you, you get an idea and it kind of it kind of spins out. I mean, where does uh, where does uh, somebody get an idea for a song like "Over the Rainbow"? You know, they just they just yeah. get it and and then they work it out. I mean, um, that was something that just kind of came all and all and all in a rush, and I worked it out very very quickly and kind of uh, see when you when you're young and you're just beginning. You, you're not as critical of your own ideas as you get to be when you get older, and uh, sometimes being too critical of your own ideas, you squash a lot of things that could really be lively if you let them kind of run, you know, let them take their head. About now, what's up with the uh, Spider Baby remake? And you're listed as a producer on this. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to if that's going to to um, to happen or not. I know the the guys that are working on it basically they, they brought me in. Uh, uh, for for the rights and uh, to advise them and so forth and I haven't seen the latest rewrite yet. They're working on it and uh, whether they will be get to be able to get financing on it, uh, I don't know. It's very very tough these days. But um, I have uh, other people in choir as, uh, who would want to do that also. 
so who knows? Now you, there, there's, I read something about a sequel to Spider Baby that had vampires involved. Now, is that yeah. something will ever happen? Well, I, I hope so. I did a rewrite on it just uh, recently to really pep it up and make it really up to date and kind of kinky. <laughs> And uh, normally I wouldn't be interested in doing it. I mean, like for a Spider-Baby remake, I mean, that'd be the last thing in the world I would, I would want to do myself. Uh, you know, I've been there and done that. Um, but um, this sequel has a certain charm to it that I, w- I would really love to do. And uh, but I can only tell you that financing is very, very tough to get these days. And if you got the chance to make this sequel, would any of the original cast return? Uh, yeah, probably. I know Sid Haig is really on board to do it, and uh, as for the other, you know, they're like, what, 40, 50 years older now, so it would be a slight difference, um, but it's possible, yeah. Well, Sid Haig, uh, you, you, you go way back with Sid Haig from day one. Oh, yeah, um, student film. And, and, like, like, mm-hmm. and he, he has been in many conventions that we have been out, and we covered conventions, and he is just the nicest man that you can meet and he's open to the fans he doesn't back away he'll be out there talking with the fans constantly um it's it's a what what's it like working with sid haig sid is just great i don't have to but basically uh you know if he has any 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 questions in his mind about something he'll he'll ask me but generally i just let him do what he wants to do and because we sort of think along the same lines and once it's written, he knows exactly what I have in mind, and uh, he he brings he brings stuff to a role that uh, the writer would never have thought of, you know, and uh, and really makes it come to life. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Now, how about there's four Barless, Bars Karloff films that you're a credit to. Now, did you work directly with Bars Karloff? Oh yeah, that uh, was a really weird. Uh, situation uh it was a mexican producer um, uh, my uh, lawyer at the time was also the lawyer for all the mexican companies uh who distributed in in the states and uh and uh, they had the backing of columbia pictures because columbia had a real major south american and mexican uh, market and so the producer got the money to do this and it was an absolutely insane idea he wanted to do four pictures back to back and he didn't have scripts for any of them and uh, I learned many years later that in Mexico everybody thought he was absolutely nuts. And uh, <laughs> so my, I think it's maybe only uh, the kind of learning that you get from from Roger Corman that ma- that makes it um, I won't say possible, but makes it thinkable to write four scripts for Boris Karloff in which all of his scenes could be shot in Hollywood back to back, and then the rest of the pictures finished later in over many many months. Uh, in Mexico, so uh, to to write a script and construct it in such a way you can do that. I mean that's uh, that's old stuff with Roger Corman. You know he would do that. <laughs> he would shoot three days with Chris Carloff and then write a script to go with it on the on the chair. And uh, so, I'm sorry. I was going to say, so, but you're working with uh, Bars Carloff. You worked with Lon Chaney. What's it like for you as you know growing up with Universal Monsters and having these legends to work with? Oh, it was a, it was a dream come true. Of course, yeah. The Universal horror movies were my just absolute favorites. I mean, I was in an age when I, you know, get under the chair <laughs> in the theater, and uh, and I loved Cheney because he had such an appealing personality, and 
And uh, so, yeah, working with him was, was just really, really delightful. And with Boris also. I mean, he was a living icon at that time. And it was right. Because he, he was already dying then. And uh, he had emphysema and he had an oxygen bottle and he'd sit in his wheelchair. And when he had to do action, he'd get up and do the stuff. And then he'd sit back down and take the oxygen again. And he put it to me this way. He said, I want to go out and harness. You know, he wanted to work. He was so happy to, to work because... That was another tricky thing about that deal because they couldn't get insurance on it. You know? I mean, to make a movie without having your star insured is almost unthinkable. But this guy took the chance on doing it, and uh, so I mean, Boris was unemployable for practically for that reason, almost. Yeah. So, um, he, and he loved the idea of doing four different characters in, in four weeks. Now, what's the film that you've made that you're most proud of? I don't know. That changes from from day to day. I, you know, <laughs> uh, my biographer recently, the guy is Callum Waddell, who who was uh, just recently published this book about my my films. I don't call him a biographer, but that's what he calls it. Uh, he thinks that my best film by uh, is is uh, Pit Stop, and um, and uh, it's sort of my most serious film, where I had total control of everything, and uh, almost and. Um, it's a kind of a overlooked film because it's a, it's a film about stock car racing. You don't realize you, 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 yeah, I don't want to see that. But uh, people who see it um, really just uh, go crazy over it, and they get all the friends to see it, and they watch it over and over again. It's, I think it's, uh, in in a sense, it's probably my my best actual accomplishment of making something out of. Fact that's that's sense. a really hard one to get. I don't think it's on DVD yet. Oh yeah, it's been out on DVD, sure. Has it? Okay. Well, I, I, you can, yeah, you can download it now. Um, I had it on a, a, a net, uh, not Netflix, uh, what do they call it, uh, BitTorrent. Bit uh, and as soon as they put it on, they got they got uh, just hundreds and hundreds of, of, of downloads on it. But then uh, they went under because everybody's downloading for free. All the pirates are out there now. Right. And so, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's it's on. Uh, Definitely, it's on DVD. It's out of print, but uh, I'm well, sure. Well, that's that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just, it's harder to get this. You, you get it on eBay, I'm sure. Right. Let me ask you about the perfect wife. This is a film that you you really want to make. I think you written it with your wife. Yeah, she's got a great story in mind. <laughs> now, has she always? Uh, how long have you been married? Uh, let me see. I think as of now, thirty almost thirty five years. Wow, congratulations. So has she helped you a lot through uh, the years with writing and, you know, with she ideas? Helped, she helped me a lot with, with life, let me put it that way. And there's, <laughs> But it was only after my, my uh, kids grew up and, um, and uh, went off on their own that we could really kind of really seriously, like, get together. And, well, yeah, it was, it was only after some years that uh, – when I decided, because I was totally unknown for, for a long time until uh, home video came in and people started being able to see my films, you know, and then suddenly right. I was kind of famous. So, that was kind of, so I started to think maybe let's let's work on some really good, fine screenplays that we could get mainstream, you know, shoot for an Academy Award instead of box office. And uh, so we're, we're, we're working on We've written uh, several scripts now, and uh, we're working on trying to get financing. And the perfect wife is a romantic comedy. Yeah. And you you had said that it's hard to sell a Jack Hill romantic comedy, but I, I kind of want to argue that because That's a lot funny. of your films 
<laughs> no, but I don't think so. Your films definitely have comedy. Everything I've seen has yeah. comedy in it. has romance in it. There's yeah. no reason that I would not I would buy the ticket immediately because you have shown the skills to to write both comedy and romance. Yeah. And uh I would love to see The Perfect Wife. Now there's another film. I don't know if this was maybe the film be, became The Perfect Wife. I don't know, but there's one called Don't Ask. It's a romantic comedy takeoff of film noir. Yeah, that's that's uh yeah, it's it's you know, it's uh it's hard to separate I got a funny. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Something oh, happened, but I got a funny voice telling me I was off something. I don't know. No, uh, it's not streaming. I don't know why, but. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a it's a it's a kind of a suspense thriller, romance, romantic comedy. You know, it's it's you can't it's not pinnable down to to a to a genre. Like when you think of a romantic comedy, you think of a certain thing. But it's 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 got a lot of different uh, elements to it so it's a multi-genre piece do you have a favorite film noir piece the film favorite film noir hmm, that's a, that is a good question um i don't know a funny thing happens i i look at i've been looking at a lot of film uh, film noirs uh lately that i just remember from when i was very young and you know what that's funny they don't hold up uh, like they like they used to i find them so totally full of holes and red herrings and Totally unbelievable that I don't find that satisfying anymore, with very very few exceptions. And I'm wow. to the name of an exception, and I just can't think of one. <laughs> I don't know. I feel I feel like the complete opposite. I I find myself watching the film more a lot because I feel like the just it's it's very gritty, and and I find that very what, what, entertaining. Laura, you said. Which, which Laura's one? a great film. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that the one you mentioned? The title you mentioned? No, I didn't mention Laura, but I love Laura. Okay. That's a great uh, film, and uh, Gilda is another one. But I, I'll tell you, Rita Hayworth is a complete bitch in half that film. You well, know. she's a bitch in all of her films. I mean, my God, look at Gilda for heaven's sake! You know, we're talking about you know, hate turns her on. I mean, that's what do you want? <laughs> but I think you know, it's not. A, it's a lot subtle the way they had to do things back then. Uh, yeah. But you know, and she finally, you know, and Gilda is that bitch, and then gets her, you know, payback when he just puts her in a little you know, cocoon of where she's got to deal with all her sins. It's it's just brilliant, I think, the way they they would make the film noirs back then. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you, you know, know, see, that's how limitations um, spur creativity quite often. Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're hampered by all these rules, you can't show this, you can't show that, so you've got to figure out some way to get around it. So you like, couldn't, they couldn't show bullets entering a body, which is why a lot of those things, by today's standards, looks so phony. You see somebody get shot three or four times, and there's not even a hole in his jacket. <laughs> and uh, so, like, Warner's was really good at that. Like, uh, one of my favorite examples, well, a couple of favorite examples. One of them is, uh, I forget the name of the movie, but it was one of those uh, crime thrillers where you see these guys, uh, these gangsters, they, they go into the elevator in a hospital, and the cops are coming after them. And the elevator doors close, and the cops come up with machine guns. Bam, 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 bam. You see all these holes in the elevator door, and then the movie cuts to the next floor up, and you see the elevator doors open, and here's all those guys lying dead in there. See, that's much more clever and much more fun than seeing a lot of a lot of right. bodies getting shot to pieces. I mean, don't you think? I think so. 
I agree. And even, even certain things like in the Maltese Falcon, where the character is obviously a homosexual, but they weren't allowed to do that. And so Bogart calls him a gunsel the whole time, uh, you know, which... Well, yeah, that's another one. The gay... <laughs> gay like, I, it's, funny, it's funny you brought that up, because I just looked at... Uh, at uh, the big sleep the other night, which was broadcast on Turner Classic, and unfortunately they used what they called the uncut version, which was the version that that the studio tried out in the theaters and it flopped, and they went back and reshot some scenes and made the movie much better. And mm-hmm. uh, the, you know they have the characters in there. There's a big in the novel. There's a big like, gay theme to it, you know, which which by the way, uh, uh, the, the uh, writer um, uh, what's his name. Um, Bradbury was—I mean—he's really homophobic in the way he, he writes uh, the, in his in his book, and they had to cover all that up, you know, which kind of made the movie kind of scratch your head and say, "What's this?" So yeah, uh, yeah, they had to try to get around those things. Well, uh, we are out of time, but I thank you so much for calling in, and good luck with the perfect wife. I hope you get financing, and I wish you luck in all your future endeavors. Well, thank you, RJ. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you very much for calling in. Um, I, you know, I'm a big fan, and I hope to see a lot more by, uh, by you. Well, thanks so much. I hope somebody's listening. <laughs> no, we have, we have, uh, it's global, so uh, this is yeah, something right. that people can hear in any, any country they want to listen to. And plus, after the show airs, it gets archived, and people can download it to their iPods. <laughs> uh, okay, just my dry sense of humor, Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks again, and uh, have a good night. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, Chris, you still there? I'm here. All right. It was a good interview. It was very good. I don't, great guy. Yeah, uh, they're just, you never know, just not enough time to go into all the How much he has done, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could and, talk uh, to, you know, Spider Baby just for years. Yeah, for 45 minutes, yeah. Spider Baby alone is amazing. And it, it's funny when you ask somebody about such a unique idea. And well, but you know, like, you know, if I can plug, being a writer myself, I do understand uh, what he means. These ideas they just happen, and it does get crazy when people say, "Well, where did you get the idea for that?" You know, it's right. It happens, and you know, there's no formula to it. You know, you just get an idea and see where it takes you. Yeah, it's one of those unexplainable. I can, I can appreciate that. 